But first are some developments in our community morale. Last week, the US government, via a big task force there, recommended to health professionals that all patients under 65 be screened for anxiety, no matter what their presentation. That was their comment on the way both COVID and issues before the pandemic were weighing terribly on Americans. A similar advisory had already been issued for younger people. The question we'd like to examine today is, is this relevant for Australia? And it seems timely given that Mental Health Month starts today. Anxiety is seen as the most prevalent mental health issue here, as in the US, where it affects around 20% of the population. What are the stats around individual and communal health from the last two years of huge disruption? Might both new and old remedies apply? Well, Professor Ian Hickey and Bridget Delaney joined me yesterday to make sense of this. Ian is co-director of health and policy at the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre. And Bridget Delaney is author of a new book, Reasons Not to Worry, How to Be Stoic in Chaotic Times. I welcome them both. Thank you, Geraldine. Good to be here. Ian, the fact that only about 37% of Americans with anxiety are believed to be getting treatment is quite a stark statistic. Now, I don't necessarily assume that there's overlap between our countries. What is your view about the latest evidence regarding Australia? Well, Geraldine, we're lucky to have had a National Mental Health Survey during the COVID period. And we have very similar statistics And actually, more than 50% of people in Australia who have a mental health condition, anxiety, depression, or one of the other common problems, do not receive any care at all. So that's pretty much the case in Australia, as well as the United States and most other developed countries. And top of the list of not getting help is anxiety. So depressive disorders, eating disorders, other more identified and, and often severe disorders are more likely to get care. But anxiety disorders are those which are least likely to come into professional help. And what would they be, like, give me a couple of the names, the labels that are used. So people use general anxiety disorders, panic disorders and panic attacks, post-traumatic stress disorder. And interestingly, post-traumatic stress is the one that has really grown in recent years where people are reporting that they have had traumatic experiences in childhood or in adulthood and that being associated with significant anxiety. There are others like obsessive compulsive disorder, are less commonly the case And the one that now tops the list is, and really interestingly, social anxiety. So that issue of actually being very uncomfortable in public, very uncomfortable engaging in workplaces or schools and feeling very anxious and then actually often self-treating with alcohol and other substances, or most importantly in the post-COVID world, avoiding contact with schools or workplaces, being reluctant to go out again, is the one that has really sharply peaked in young people, but also in the rest of the population. So given that social media is so deeply embedded in the lives of Gen X, millennials, Gen Y, with the whole, as I'm told, the TikTok prescribing phenomenon, where all sorts of people with zero um, credentials, <laughs> just, you know, are prescribing to each other and diagnosing, is this, is this adding to it? This is one factor. Interesting, TikTok, its attention deficit, ADHD, which has gone crazy on TikTok and promoting the use of stimulant medication in particular in that area. So that's probably one of the most worrying areas of self-diagnosis of ADHD and a recommendation really of a medical treatment and one that's frequently obviously misused. But it is true that the sharing of these experiences has an upside, people sharing the problems they have, but often has a downside in terms of some of the remedies that are recommended. And I might say 
as is being highlighted in the United States at the moment by the New York Times and others, a total focus on the individual tends to miss what is happening more broadly socially in our countries that is contributing to this general level of anxiety and distress, which is not necessarily best responded to by individual treatments. So we are pathologising, are you implying that? Because I know there'll be listeners saying, oh, look, we're, we're born to be a bit anxious. This is getting out of control, the perception of it. Well, well, there are two things. Before COVID happened, rates of anxiety disorders and other mental health problems were increasing significantly in young people and particularly in young women. But during the COVID period, rates of anxiety and depression, but particularly anxiety and distress, went up significantly. So I think there is an issue... The awareness is great. People are aware of what matters. And I think they're aware of what happened. The social disconnection of COVID had impacts on everybody and the fear, of course, related to health and health anxiety. But we do have to be careful here between that level of distress, which will go down again as we resume our normal lives, assuming we do, of course, and those who've gone on to develop more significant mental health problems who now require care because we don't really have care systems that can respond to that volume of people. Well, that's a real issue, isn't it? I take it that one of the thing messages through this Mental Health Month will be reach out, you know, uh, let people know if you feel you're in distress, but you've got to have some systems to treat them, haven't you? Well, here's the challenge. So what has happened is we have, just like aged care, we did not have a mental health system that could cope with the demand, particularly amongst young people, pre-COVID. It's been swamped. It's been overwhelmed during the COVID period. So now we see this really large gap between the requirement for services, those who have developed serious problems and are now willing to come forward, that's the upside, and actually receiving effective care. And that's one of the things with anxiety, actually. It's not hand-holding, it's not reassurance, it's not don't worry. It needs to be skilled. It needs to have strategies that actually work. And people need to be able to access those strategies, preferably non-medication-based behavioural and psychological strategies that are effective as quickly as possible so they don't go on to self-treat with alcohol or cannabis or other drugs, and they don't actually avoid engagement with school or education or the workplace, and most importantly, their social connections with each other. Well, this is a perfect point to bring in Bridget, who's been listening patiently. Uh, I'm keen to hear how you're hearing all this, Bridget. Um, what strikes you primarily about uh, Ian's um, you know, list of, uh, uh, of statistics? Um, it doesn't surprise me at all, but... Um what was really interesting to hear was what some of the fixes might be, and they're not necessarily fixes that are found on social media, but are, are dealing with people's, um, I guess, issues without using drugs or or other therapies or, you know, self-medication like alcohol. And I've been studying the ancient Stoics, and they certainly did not <laughs> prescribe alcohol um, or drugs for anyone who was having, having a wobble. Um, it was really about training your mind and using reason to overcome fear. What key lessons did the Stoics give you that you think are applicable to some of these uh, conditions you've been hearing about today? I've been hearing a lot um, today and also during the pandemic about overwhelm. You know, it's just one of those things of people feel that there's a lot coming at them, you know, that they can't, um, they can't control a lot of things, they're, um, they're freaking out, there's too much to do, they're burnt out. And so it's almost like people become immobilised and, and anxious. And the Stoics, you know, they had a version of that as well. You know, they lived in hard times. There was pestilence, plagues, you know, really a wobbly Roman crazy, Empire. Yeah, crazy mm. politics. And um, Marcus Aurelius, the great kind of Roman um, emperor Stoic, 
just said take one thing at a time. If you've dealt with something in the past, if if you meet today with what you met yesterday with, then you'll survive it. You'll get through it because you've actually come this far. And I think we can forget that we have overcome struggles in the past and we will continue to overcome if we have confidence in our own abilities. And with the overwhelm, take one thing at a time. You know, don't don't look too far ahead. Just say, what do I have to do in the next half hour and uh, a half hour after that? What do they say about community versus the individual, though? Because I think this is emerging as a very, a, a very interesting sort of um, bit of a tension in, in some of the writing. Well, Marcus Aurelius had this great quote, which is, um, what's great for the bee is great for the hive. And they believe that we're meant to be in community. We're meant to be functioning as a society. Everyone has a role and that humans were built for each other. So deep at the core of their philosophy is a sense of being able to control yourself individually, but also being connected. Um, So they said you can't control other people. You can't control their reactions you can't control if your boss yells at you, if your partner dumps you, if, you know, I just got an email saying my rent was going up $50 a week, you know. Mm. I can't control that. Um, and it is stressful, but you can control your reactions to that. So, you know, it's um, it's all about working out what you can and can't control. And that does sound individualistic, but it's also, you know, it's, it's, there's a fundamental truth to it. Um, and I don't think that undermines the community aspect of stoicism either. Well, I wonder in, I mean, it is interesting to hear the, you know, the ancient philosophers being brought into this quite wisely, I think. But at what point do you think treatment for anxiety ought to happen at, at, at you know, at the at the primary care level? Who, who do people turn to? Well, people need to be able to turn to effective treatments and they need to be skilled. And now it's interesting about when you raise the primary care. I mean, it's kind of a classic way is, you know, start with a primary care, start with a GP if it's worked to progress. In the modern age, and I must say I'm associated with this myself, you can go online, you can learn strategies, you can access things that work effectively because you need to learn at that point. Firstly, what you said, when is it a problem? When it's stopping me going to school, when it's stopping me going to work, when I'm aroused all the time, when I can't sleep, when you can't do what was just being discussed, reduce your own arousal. Where Every single stressor, everything that happens, every newspaper report, every world report sets you off. You're in a high state of anxiety. So physiologically, it's making you sick. So if it's making you sick, if you can't actually attend and avoid and connect, then you need to learn some skills. First, to de-arouse. And then second, the the real treatment for for anxiety is exposure. It's to put yourself in those situations that actually make you anxious and then reduce your anxiety so you participate. And when you participate, your anxiety goes down. So you worry about it before you get there, but actually if you can be there and be in the situation at work, at school, in a social situation and cope, your anxiety goes down and then you get all the benefits from being reconnected. So it's the social disconnection. I, mean, I think the social factor here, Geraldine, is really worth emphasising, the extent to which we've all got very disconnected as a consequence of COVID and need to re-establish those social connections every day, a day at a time, and participate. And then our arousal levels go down. The hormones associated with arousal, cortisol, adrenaline all go down. Your heart rate goes down. Physiologically, you feel well. Well, exactly. See, we, all, we all need to be able to do that. Yeah, but, you know, I can remember you being, I think I'm right, in those early days, way back in 2020 and 2021, you were much more, you thought there were going to be sort of terrible statistics around suicide. Yes. And it didn't yes. happen to the best of my knowledge. And, you know, you do wonder whether there was a slowing down as well for a lot of people, which actually was a boost 
to their mental health and the interactivity in families improved. So I'm just trying to tease out how, you know, the, the, the cross currents here. Well, what could have gone wrong, and I think one of the most important things the government did, and we studied this a lot and modelled it continuously, job keeper and job seeker, keeping people connected with work. Mm. They didn't lose their jobs. Even though they weren't going to their jobs, they didn't lose their jobs. They stayed connected often to workplaces and people. And then with the fortunate use of technology, most people did stay connected. But you're quite right also, people did retreat back to some degree to their families and their communities, which was a very good thing. I think you and I discussed, would Australia actually cope as a community? I think locally, we did. I think in terms of states and federal governments, much more questionable. But I think in people's own communities, there was a good deal of support and that probably offset what would have been much more of the worrying projections that I and others were associated with, that if those things didn't happen, we'd be in much greater trouble. Mm. I mean, you, you've criticised, you're saying that there isn't enough um, mental health treatment at primary care level and you've criticised GPs and they've hit back quite against the claim. Um, what is your, where could we do better there in your view? Well, there's a whole lot of issues. And I think this is what is happening in schools already. There's teaching skills. We teach sex education, we teach drug education. We need to teach those cognitive and behavioural skills to control anxiety and arousal and put yourself in situations that are challenging. But when people get into trouble, they need to be accessing skilled care. And there are a range of services government supports online. There's an expansion of psychological services. Do those online ones work though, those self-care ones online? Yes. Do they? Yes. Yes, they do. (laughs) Because this is a skills issue. You can learn those skills. You don't necessarily need to tell people your whole life story, what happened with your mother, whatever happened last week. You need to know the skills to decrease your anxiety and allow you to participate in the particular areas. And and skilled psychology does that. And the fact it's been able to go online, there are many, many studies demonstrating its effectiveness, particularly for this kind of problem. And and as an alternative to what people normally do, which is avoid anxiety-provoking situations and self-treat in bad ways. (laughs) And simple reassurance. My beef with relatively unskilled professionals of any sort is they tend to provide reassurance tell you not to worry, or worse, support you not to participate, you know, support you not to go back to school, support you not to go back to work because you've got a problem when it's harsh. But the real treatment is actually being back in those situations, but having skills to cope when you are facing anxiety-provoking problems. Does this ring true to you, Bridget? Um, absolutely. I mean, look, every case of anxiety is different, and obviously there are some people who, you know, need you know, medication in order to, to function. And there are people who have just a general sense of anxiety floating around. So, you know, it's it's hard to do a one-size-fits-all. Um, I think with the Stoics, what, what they believed was that if you can't control something, you shouldn't worry about it. It's just too much energy going in a direction that's wasted. So work out what you can and can't control. And if you can't control it, just move on to the next thing. And the main thing they um, focused on were these four virtues, which were courage, wisdom, temperaments and justice. And developing courage, actually, like Ian was saying, it helps us face our fears and believe that we can go into challenging situations that might have made us anxious. So, you know, cultivating those virtues like courage can be really beneficial in overcoming, you know, generalised anxiety. It was moderation too was in there, wasn't it? Yeah, moderation. So they believed, um, you know, don't get too high, don't get too low, have this thing called adoraxia, which is like a Greek word for equilibrium, being chilled, um, not getting angry, not getting too 
sort of head up by things. Um, they were particularly harsh on anger. They thought it was a very destructive emotion. So, yeah, they just believed in a, an even temperament. Uh, look, thank you both. I think we'll leave it there. And, uh, you know, I just know the text line <laughs> is going to blow up with this as we aim for that uh, those glittering prizes. Ian Hickey, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And uh, Bridget Delaney, thank you to you. Thank you very much, Geraldine. And Professor Ian Hickey is the co-director of Health and Policy at the Brain and Mind Centre at Sydney University and also does a very listened-to podcast, Minding Your Mind, with James O'Loughlin, Bridget Delaney, a writer and commentator and author of Reasons Not to Worry, How to Be Stoic in Chaotic Times. It's an Alan and Unwin publication. A couple of you have said that listening to Ian made the, made you anxious. Uh, well, he does speak quickly. I will acknowledge that, but he has a lot of very good things to say. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.